Radio City, once again, episode 216 is underway. John Grayson, Rob Ross here with you. Me from Kansas City, him from New York. Rob, how's everything going? Well, um, nothing changes in New York. You know that. So I'm going to opine on it. It's, as everybody is wont to say in this day and age, it is what it is. And I just don't want to, you know, darken the spirits of this evening because we have a really long show to do. I will tell you that right now, folks. You better strap in, get yourself a comfortable seat, <laughs> drink, and uh, be ready to listen for a while because we haven't done this since July and there's a lot to talk about, but we want to kind of do it in a really good spirit. So I want to start off with something I found that was very humorous to me um, on my Facebook page, because I don't know if a lot of you understand this, but I am not on social media that much anymore. I just basically can't stand it. Um, I'm completely off Twitter or X or whatever it's called. And I almost never go on to Facebook, but I did go on today and I found something that crawled along my um, my Facebook page. Uh, uh, what do you call it? My wall, I guess, uh, or feed. Um, it came from the Big Star fan group, and somebody posted, quote unquote, I just went to play my copy of I Am the Cosmos, the original Car 7 Inch from 1978, only to discover that, to my horror, it has cracked. Ooh. Crack runs from edge of vinyl to center label, making record unplayable. I am devastated as I bought it in 1981. Record has always been carefully stored upright and has avoided direct sunlight, humidity, etc. Has anyone ever heard of such a thing? And among the responses, and this was the classic, and that's why this is funny, Chris Stamey of the DBs, who in fact was the one who put out I Am the Cosmos on Car, mm-hmm. and for Chris and Richard, Richard Lloyd, um, Chris Stamey responded with, although it is with regret, the Returns and Consumer Complaints Department of Car Records must sadly must uh, of necessity inform you that the warranty on said product has expired (laughs) and no refund will be forthcoming. Many thanks, however, for having purchased said item and having relished it in the intervening decades. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry, but uh, come on, folks. You know, I, you know, I, I feel bad that this guy's record broke. But seriously, yeah. <laughs> You're gonna so- I mean, is, is this is exactly why I can't be on social media. You know, I think the final breaking point for me was this group that I'm part of called where Staten Island eats and drinks. And I think the prerequisite is that you have to be a complete and utter dickhead to be <laughs> in this group because no one ever has anything decent to say. The whole point of it is to give your opinions and reviews and people do this in a very reasonable, logical way. Of restaurants on Staten Island, we have a fantastic restaurant culture. I mean, that's there's no question about it. We are the great uh, unknown um, sort of secret crown jewel in the New York City area because we're the most affordable for great food. But people just tear anyone who criticizes a restaurant apart. Uh, they criticize a place that has bad service. They criticize poor deliveries. Restaurants, eating out, food deliveries, whatever the case may be, is a mass fortune nowadays. It's really gotten to the point of being as expensive as just buying groceries on your own and trying to be able to afford what you have to get for the week as it is to go out. So, you know, the the hope is that you're paying all this money. You want it to be a quality occasion. Having quality service and, and a really great experience and being able to enjoy it. But what happens is people just go after you like vultures and they say the most horrific things. And then it turns into a whole war of attrition between 
those who are, I guess, fans or friends of the owners of the restaurants versus the person who went there and the people who will defend them. So th this is really why I stay off of of, uh, of social media, plus the fact that everyone on social media, it doesn't matter what the topic is, is a know-it-all. And if you say, I like blue versus green, people come after you regardless. So it's it's a pointless exercise now. It's not fun. It's not communicative. It's not it's not constructive. So I stay away from social media. But you know, once every now and then I'll pop in just to see what some of my quote real world friends may have going on. And most of them are also unfortunately in this bag that I've just mentioned. But I just thought that was really funny and yeah. cute to start with. But uh, since our last show, there have been a lot. Of, and it's been a while since we've done this, but uh, and as much as I hate doing it, there have been a lot of passings of famous people, influential people, important people, people we've enjoyed and cared about. And I want to go down the short version of that list because there's too many of them to cover, and I don't want this to be just a show of maudlin you know, recappings. But the first one, since it happened just as we did the last show, of course, was Tony Bennett. And I don't even know where to begin or end because we could do a show just on how great the man was. How oh, yeah of a singer he was how i don't care what generation you come from you have to acknowledge that tony bennett was one of the three greatest singers that ever walked the face of the earth he dean martin and of course frank sinatra and it just it was such a blow i mean yes he was 92 93 years old but so what you know it's a loss to the generations. Well, yeah, and, and let me stop you there for a second, because in addition to being an indelible loss, even at age 92, he was still active. I mean, it's not like he had spent the last 20 years packing it in. You know what I mean? He, he had done all of the different collaborations with people like Lady Gaga and all of these great series of duets. So it's not like at age 92, we hadn't heard from him since he was in his 60s. Right. I mean, he just worked and worked and worked and worked until, unfortunately, he could not work anymore. Yeah. And it, it's still it's a loss to culture at a time when a singer like Tony Bennett meant everything to culture. And it crossed over the, quote, cultural boundaries and, and borderlines. So, of course, we lost Sinead O'Connor. And I don't even know how she passed. I, I don't know if it was by her own hand. It or was. It, OK. Um you know, look, I worked with her when I was at Atlantic Records. She was very difficult, to say the least. But still, you know, she was obviously well known for the problems that she had, never mind the fact that she had an incredible voice that could have been far better utilized over the years. And just she was her own worst enemy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, she unfortunately was she fell victim to what a lot of people see as the only way to get your name out there, which is causing controversy still. I mean, despite that amazing voice and you're right, she had a reputation as being difficult to work with by other musicians and by really anybody producers and anybody who had to work with her, but the voice was what it was all about. And still at the end, they could not let the obits for her past without mentioning tearing up the picture of the Pope on Saturday night live and all of the rest of it. So that more than it has with a lot of other musicians, continued to follow her through her career. Which is an interesting kind of contradiction because they've sent, you know, they've canonized John Lennon. And I think we <laughs> yeah. all know that John Lennon was not exactly the, um, well, the saint that they make him out to be. So Paul McCartney can tell you a bit about that. Right. So Yoko could probably tell you a bit about that too. So uh, then, of course, we lost Pee Wee Herman. 
which just caught me completely off guard. I was never a great fan because, you know, I was kind of too old for the whole peewee craze when he came along. But, you know, he was funny. He was charming. You know, he was witty. I kind of likened, right, rightly or wrongly, but I kind of likened Paul Rubens to Andy Kaufman in his way of doing what he did. It wasn't so much in-your-face comedy as it was much more of a, a sense of performance art that was very much its own thing, and you had to figure that out for yourselves, which is what I appreciated about him. Yeah, I always liked the Groundlings. I always liked what they were about. And he came out of that troupe, of course, and before the Pee Wee Herman character had really solidified, he was on screen as Hamburger Dude in Cheech and Chong's next movie, which was... I mean, they, they, you know, picked from that comedy troupe over and over and over again throughout their movie career, but it was really, he was one of the outstanding characters in one of the films from them that really wasn't that great, but still there was somebody to talk about and it was Paul Rubens. I mean, he just, he was kind of a scene stealer, even if he didn't try. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, um, another, another one, you know, unfortunately gone before his time. Um, then of course there was the shocking news about Robbie Robertson, yeah, which totally caught me off guard. I have loved the band since I was a kid and yes, I know of the controversy of Robbie Robertson versus the whole rest of the group and, and what went on with Lee Von Helm and so on. And whatever you may think, whatever you may feel about it, Robbie Robertson's talent, knowledge and skill as a songwriter and arranger, it can never be equaled. You know, without him, the band was not the band. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever listened to any of their post-Robbie Robertson era releases. They just weren't that good. They weren't as... What's the word I'm looking for? Balanced? Okay, that makes sense. No, he had that... He also was the main songwriter, quote-unquote. Again, not wanting to get into the whole controversy of who really contributed to what songs and who should have gotten the credits. But he was the main writer and he knew how to write songs. You know, my whole thing is, you know, there's there's two schools of thought when when you can talk about songwriting and, and what happens within the framework of a band. You have one person who is the primary songwriter. Let them do what they're going to do, because if they can take you to a level of success, don't mess with the formula. Really. If they say they want to change things, they want to explore new avenues because they feel that this is a good direction for the band to go. Go with that. Yeah. Let the person who has led you to the path of success take you to that next possible plateau. There's also the school of thought that has the idea of, well, songwriting is the biggest place where you make money. So we'll split the credits four different ways. Yes, but if you're not really contributing to the writing process, is that really fair? Yeah, because you're getting paid for something you didn't do. And we've seen that. I mean, any any time money comes into the situation, you're going to have tension involved in that, whether it's, well, how come you get paid more than the rest of us simply because you wrote the words down on the page versus what you're talking about? Why are you getting the same cut I'm getting when I wrote all the music and all you did was sit here and play the drums or whatever? So, yeah, it's it's always going to be tough, but you're right. I, I mean, I think more than anything, what drew me to the band was the wit in the lyricism. Every single song they did, even the ones that were among the more serious songs that they did, they still had, there was something in there to make you go, wow, you know, you put a little bit of that smile on your face and go, that was clever. That was nice. I also love the fact that they really had a lot of, a lot of soul. Yeah. I mean, you know, Rick Danko was an incredible singer. 
Richard Manuel was a fantastic singer. Levon Helm, he was in a school by himself, but yep. you know, Danko and and Manuel never get the credit due them as really powerful, soulful singers. And you know, they people forget, you know, with the exception of Levon Helm, they were Canadian, but they really seem to come from the 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 essence of that group was really the memphis area you know that definitely the whole swamp feeling everything about them but um in any event another great loss and this is an important one for those who are in the music industry jerry moss the m part of a and m records also died he was 88 years old he died in august and you know between he and herb alpert they gave us a world of music that w- nobody else, I don't think, would have touched. And that was the great thing about A&M Records. They were known as the artist's label right up until the point where they were sold and then gutted, in effect, by Universal in the uh, mega merger slash slaughter of Polygram-owned labels uh, in 1998. But if you think about the rosters of A&M through the years, it's phenomenal, you know. You had Herb Alpert as the first artist signed because obviously that's why they started the label. You had the Merry-Go-Round was their first rock and roll band and little known to most people, but their drummer and guitarist, because he was a multi-instrumentalist, was a fellow named Emmett Rhodes, who we've talked about and who we've loved for years. Um, But then they signed the Carpenters and they signed Free. And later on, they really were one of the few quote major labels to to you know put both feet into the punk rock waters they signed the police they signed squeeze in the united states they contracted and sold records by the stranglers by the cure they were also the label that gave the funding to irs records which of course was really the quintessential punk label so i can't thank him enough for what he did for music as far as i'm concerned you know that's another uh Another major one. And um, really, I guess the only other one that we can talk at, about with, with at length, obviously, and justifiably so, would be Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going to turn the microphone over to you for that <laughs> Yeah, well, and see, my experience with Jimmy Buffett goes back literally almost as far as I can remember. My dad became a huge Jimmy Buffett fan. I don't remember how it was that he discovered Buffett. I'm sure it was you know, all of his pot smoking friends, (laughs) but either way, uh, while we were living in Buffalo and, and of course, one of Jimmy Buffett's songs, manana has that line in it. They're freezing up in Buffalo, stuck in their cars while I'm lying here neath the sun and the stars. That became my dad's sort of mantra. And it's why we ended up moving to Florida in 1979, getting out of the snow. Sure. But, but also because that, that legend, what Jimmy Buffett painted, the pictures that he painted of Florida and Key West specifically in that whole landscape was brilliant. I mean, and it was so attractive at the time. It was what Florida isn't now. And all of the music was so laid back and so much fun and so intelligently written too, by the way, because Buffett kind of had to invent his own thing when he was rejected by the Nashville establishment in the early 1970s. He was a little too Caribbean soul to be country. So they said, no, you don't really belong here, kid. Go do something else. And he did. So he invented his own thing. I mean, Bertie Higgins and I don't know how many others that that came afterward owe everything they they had to offer to Jimmy Buffett paving the way. They never would have had an avenue to do songs like Key Largo if it weren't for Buffett paving that ground. And the other thing about him was 
that, that we learned after we moved to Florida is that his activism, I mean, yes, he took a shot at Anita Bryant early on during one of his songs, and, and it was clear where he was coming from politically. But we got down there, and you turn on the TV on Channel 44 in Tampa in 1979, and you would see those public service announcements where Jimmy Buffett was trying to save the manatees and, and telling people, you know, pay attention to no wake zones. They can't get out of your way. And these creatures are dying. We've already seen the stellar sea cow go away forever and ever and ever. We can't see the manatee go that same way. And he was serious about this stuff. He took it seriously and he didn't just do commercials about it. He was out there, you know, on the ground and doing everything that he could in that effort to save the manatees. So, and it was successful, by the way. Their, their numbers have bounced back tremendously since the late 70s and early 80s. But that music, it, it had its own character. It had its own soul. And the other great thing about Jimmy Buffett, in, in addition to all of the amazing live shows that he did, that was a party from the very beginning to the very last note was played. He was a great live showman. But you know, the, the other thing about that music and what it really had to lend was a, a kind of a community. I mean, he was one of the first ones to put that together, the whole parrot head thing. Yeah. Other bands had their followers, but I mean, if, if you were in that group, it was, it wasn't, it was never an insular society. It was always welcoming of other people to come in and, and listen and give a listen, but it was, you know, there was a real sense of community and camaraderie amongst the fans. And that, really, to me, defined Jimmy Buffett more than anything else is being a part of that from early on, from albums like A1A and Son of a Son of a Sailor and uh, Changes in Latitudes, Changes in Attitudes, all the way forward. He never, he never changed who he was, but his writing did, in fact, improve and get better over the years. So I, I can't say enough about him. I mean, it was just, it was always there in that background for me. And it still always will be, um, you know, I, it, it, it's impossible to leave that stuff behind because when I hear a pirate looks at 40, I, I we've talked so much about being transported by music, going to a different time and place because a song comes on. When I hear a pirate looks at 40 or incommunicado or any one of a thousand songs from that early era, I'm right back with that again and and I'm never going to lose that and for for that if if for that alone I would forever love Jimmy Buffett but there's so much more there. I think that's beautifully said and, and you know you. to put a little cap on that you know people have had their their whatever you want to call it, their opinions if you will but I think it 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 speaks volumes about who Jimmy Buffett was as a person, a musician, and how loved and respected he was across the the entire musical community because all you needed to do was read the the tribute slash yeah this the, the tribute that Paul McCartney put for yes I mean, and, and then we found out that Paul had actually reached out to him before Jimmy died that they had had a conversation and that was really nice to hear as well I mean there you go I mean that's all that you need to say because I think it 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 hopefully will open your eyes to the fact that a this is not a very long time that we have here. And it doesn't matter what our, our musical tastes are or our, our bag is or whatever avenues we've followed or performed in or how, however it is. You find someone that you befriend and you have a good relationship, treasure that relationship. And that's all that matters, you know? No doubt. Um, the last one, because he's such an icon of the United States in general, uh, of TV, of our youth, um, the one and only Bob Barker. 
Yeah. You know, he was host for what, like 500 years? <laughs> Seemingly, yes. I think he was around since, you know, the days of Methuselah and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar, you know, but he was he was an affable, enjoyable guy. He was funny as all get out. He made a, a silly show like The Price is Right palatable because you used to be forced to watch that stuff when you were sick at home with, you know, and your mom wouldn't let you watch what you wanted because you only had the one TV that was working at the time. Right. Yeah. And and I mean, and he also was never afraid to make fun of himself. And nowhere is that more clear than Happy Gilmore. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, the, but the fact is that he kicked Happy Gilmore's ass all over the place. <laughs> Didn't he call Happy Gilmore a bitch? Yes, I think I, I think plus, it went both ways in that scene. Yes. And plus the fact that he was a very ardent animal rights activist, to which I'm always going to appreciate him for that alone, you know. But uh, hey, he was he was 99 years old. God bless him. He had a great run. And of course, there was that great line about him getting as close to 100 as possible without going over. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, he will definitely be missed. I mean, there are a lot of others that we could talk about, but you know what? Um, we like I said before, we'd be here all night probably because there are a lot. And, and Gary uh, Wright and, and how many others? Sure, uh, Rodriguez and. Um, a friend of mine, actually, and you probably know him, uh, Jack Sony, who played guitar in Dire Straits. You know, we lost him very recently, which was just as shocking as as could be, because I'd had a conversation with him about, I don't know, about eight or nine months ago, you know. Yeah. So uh, in any event, uh, those are the people that we've lost in this very short time frame. And um, the only other thing that I can think of that I've lost is the fact that I don't have a will t- for baseball anymore, because... The last time we talked, it was just before the trade deadline, and boy, oh boy, did the Mets really go in a direction that nobody saw coming. You had this the most expensive payroll in history at the start of the season, and by the trade deadline, they gutted the entire team. They sent Max Scherzer to the Texas Rangers, although he kind of forced their hand, and good riddance to him with the way he acted you know, during and afterwards running to the press and just shooting his mouth off and looking really bad. And by the way, he's out for the rest of the season now and for the playoffs. So if Texas does make the playoffs because they have fallen out of first place while the Astros and the Mariners continue to lead the West, uh, Scherzer's not going anywhere. So, you know, that's justice. But at the same time, they also traded uh, closer David Robertson, they traded a couple of other players, and also the other big catch from last winter, Justin Verlander, went back to the Astros, which I will say this much. You know, first of all, Justin Verlander is the anti-Max Scherzer. He conducted himself with such professionalism and was such a gentleman to the, the both the team and the, and the fans of New York. And while it's sad he only had a, a half season with the Mets, I understand where he's at. He's 40 years old. He doesn't have that much time left in baseball. There's a chance to win another World Series. Let him go where he can possibly contribute. And so I thought it was a very, again, gentlemanly thing that the Mets did by accommodating him and sending him back to Houston. I think that was a great move. And for the first time in my life, God help me, I can honestly say if there's any one team that I want to see win the World Series this year, it's going to be Houston. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that is going some. 
Well, I mean, look who else is in first place. I hate everyone else. So that's well, yeah. And I don't need to, I don't need to tell you it's been death around here because at least, I mean, the Royals became the first team to lose a hundred games this season. I don't even know where their skid's going to stop, but at the very least, usually over the last couple of decades, the, the folks here in Kansas city could at least look across the state and see some entertaining baseball out of the Cardinals. Yeah. Not anymore. (laughs) They suck so bad. Are in last place, but wait, this is the best part in New York, John. The Mets actually are not in last place as they had been. Uh-huh. Washington will take last place more likely than not. The Yankees are in last place <laughs> in the American League East. So, yeah. while I'm miserable for myself and my other fellow Mets fans, I revel in the fact that Yankee fans are suffering too. Maybe more so. I mean, yeah, they have a better win-loss record, but they're still in last place. Yeah, none of that snide crap coming from the Yankees fans this year, huh? Exactly. Now, what happened on Monday Night Football? Because I went to bed early. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I knew it was going to come up. What happened? Aaron Rodgers is gone for the season. That's what happened. Four plays. Four plays. Just think about this. At the beginning of the year, we were doing shows, and I lost it because the New York Rangers managed to shit the bed in the playoffs against the, the New Jersey Devils yep. after beating them soundly. With with some, they outscored them, they shot more goals than 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 the Devils did, and yet the Devils won that series in seven games. So okay, that's dagger in my heart number one. Then the Mets shit the bed for the entire span of the season. And by the way, I just want to say one one little thing about the Mets since the trade deadline. They brought up all the kids that everybody has been screaming about, bring them up and let them play. They are playing so much better and much more exciting, watchable baseball than they did all season long. They were flat from the minute they came out of the gate. There was just something not there, not right. Such a negative vibe across the boards, even if they won games, they just something wasn't right. Now they play with such energy. It's fun to watch them. And I think going forward, they will do a lot better next season. Good. I'm not going to put any bets on them winning any kind of division, any kind of title, even making the playoffs. But if these kids keep playing the way they've been playing, we have a fantastic future ahead of us. You're right. And if that's the case, it's not just going to be next season. It's going to be the next few seasons. They'll at least be fun to watch. That's the thing, especially at the trade deadline. My my biggest thing was if you're going to get rid of these players, you better bring back something substantial because you need to restock the farm Youth. system. Yeah. And the Mets apparently are being touted as being the absolute winners of the trade deadline because what did they really do? They got rid of, you know, 40 and 39 year old pitchers that have been that have been plagued by physical problems over the last few seasons. Guys that are at the end, the end of their very short. Um, their short contracts and would be free agents anyway. And the Mets came back with a plethora of young, ripening, quickly ripening, I should add, talent. You know, the, the, the guy that they got for Max Scherzer from the Rangers system is the brother of the Braves player, Ronald Acuna. This fellow, Luis, Luis Angel Acuna, he went from being something like ranked 20th in I think it's you know the MLB um, uh, uh, what do you call it uh, prospects rankings from 22 to number one, and ever since he got to the Mets system, he has been tearing it up. Not bad. Not bad. I think he will be leapfrogging from. I think he's in Double A right now. He'll leapfrog Double A, and maybe we'll see him sometime late next season. That's how. That's how well the Mets did. They picked everybody's pockets. Okay, you want you're vying. For for the playoffs, you're vying for a World Series. You give me your best, your best prospects, and we'll give you our guys. And that's exactly what they did. And I 
do not fault that one bit. I am one of the few people that was absolutely thrilled when they said they were trading, you know, um, uh, Scherzer and Verlander and so on. You know, I thought that was the right move. Now, and I'll be honest, if they could have traded um, uh, um, Francisco Lindor in his ten-year contract, I'd have been very happy about that. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. Regardless, we did a great job at the trade deadline. And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the Rangers and all that. I, I think the, the Jets probably lost the game. They were losing, I think, 30 to, 30 to 10 uh, when we started the show. Um, but, you know, I'm, I am not of the belief or mindset that, um, that uh, yeah, they lost 30 to 10. Oh, God, the Giants came back and beat the Cardinals 31-28. <laughs> after, after what happened to them last week in Dallas. Oh, Lord. Well, the thing was, the Cardinals were ahead twenty-eight to ten. So, I mean, yeah, and I hate the Giants. That's the thing. I wanted well, to see them go in two. Yeah, and, and going back to your question about what happened on Monday night, yeah, I mean, Josh, Josh Allen, Josh Allen had one of the bad Josh Allen games, and it clearly in the second half. I mean, you can't give the ball away four times in the second half and expect to win. So, what did they do this week? They came back uh, against. Now, granted, they came back against a not terribly good Las Vegas team and beat the living tar out of them, uh, thirty-eight to ten or thirty-eight to seventeen. I think it was the final score there. And, you know, the Bills are fine. Um, the good news for Buffalo is that Cincinnati lost last week, Kansas City lost last week, and Cincinnati lost again today, which yeah. means they're 0-2 on the year. Joe Burrow, uh, it, it, what it's showing is that the Cincinnati Bengals are not a good football team. Joe Burrow is an excellent quarterback. And if he's at all, and he's been dealing, I guess, with a hamstring injury, um, he's playing, but he's not playing great. And when he's not playing great, the Bengals lose. You know, here's the funny thing about uh, the Jets. Incredible, incredible defense. I mean, they're ridiculous. Yeah. And that will win them some games this year. They're, they're not going to go over because they don't have Aaron Rodgers. But the thing is, is that, and you know, I, I, while I was watching some of today's game, you know, Wilson didn't look bad. He was throwing. He was showing a lot more confidence. He runs really, really well. I mean, he made some good yardage. But. When he passes it, like, he goes to guys that just don't seem to be able to catch the damn ball. They seem to drop it, or 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 he's picked. They they pick him off through no fault of his. He's right. got his target set. He has the time. He sees him. He goes to throw. He makes the throw, and and all of a sudden the guy isn't there. It, that's the problem. And I do think that Aaron Rodgers has done so far and will continue to do a great job of mentoring him. But I do think they do need to go outside of the uh, the organization and get themselves a quarterback. I mean, seriously, I did go to bed after Rodgers got hurt. I was like, forget it. I just – I can't watch this. This is just – this is unreal. So when I woke up and saw that they'd actually won the game, I was stunned. Yeah, <laughs> so was I. <laughs> but but either way, yeah, I, I think the Bills are going to be fine. Um, and, and Kansas City is going to be fine. They, they had a, a tough go of it against Jacksonville today, but they did win the game on the road. And that's what a team like that is expected to do. When you get Jason Kelsey back and you get Chris, uh, Chris Jones back, then you're expected to win tough games on the road. Jacksonville, I think, gave them more than they were expecting, but they still won the game 17-9. The fact that it was close late in the fourth quarter is what, I guess, Kansas City fans aren't used to, but it'll be interesting to see how they react to it. Well, I'll tell you what, I don't know if you read this, but uh, it looks like the Bengals will go to 0-3 and then some Burrow tweaks calf. Uh, yeah, you heard it again. Yep. So, wow, that's uh, that's kind of that's kind of a drag. But, hey, you know what? Um I will also say this much, you know, um, 
I, I still get a great deal of fun and pleasure out of watching the Georgia Bulldogs. You know, early this season, they're still 3-0. I mean, here we go again, and this is yeah. with a new quarterback, you know. Although I have no idea what's going on with um, – what's his name? I forget his name. The, the the quarterback from last you know the last few years who was drafted by the Rams because they put him on some kind of non-injured list. Okay, uh, yeah. Uh, something's up with that. So I don't know. Um, that that doesn't bode well for his NFL career. Non-football injury or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and they don't call it administrative leave like they do in baseball. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's it's the beginning of a very long season. I picture if you're in, on administrative leave, you're sitting behind a desk pushing papers. Yes. Right. <laughs> you should be should be drawing up plays or something. Yeah. Maybe that's just my weird perception of things, but um, in any event, so let's talk about uh, some music, shall we? Absolutely. And stuff. Um, I recently received, uh, and, and I don't want to get into a long-winded treatise about it, but I recently received a um, a copy of a, a, a soon-to-be-released CD called Only Ghosts Remain by Bobby Sutliff, who, or actually I should say the late Bobby Sutliff, who was one of the co-founders of the magnificent power pop band from the late eighties, early nineties, the, the, um, the windbreakers and Bobby and I had been friends on Facebook for well over a decade. I, you know, as I said, in the review of this album, we bonded over our mutual love of the Beatles, big star and Epiphone casinos of which he was a massive <laughs> auto of. Yep. He was, he was so into those and he just loved to talk about them and the sounds that he could get. For, and he was such an incredibly great guitar player. Like he knew how to make that guitar sound just right. You know what I mean? But we lost him a year ago and, uh, quite suddenly, to be honest with you. Um, but in 1987, he did his first solo album away from the, uh, the windbreakers who were still going at the time. The windbreakers were on DB Rex out of, out of Atlanta, but PVC gem records released this album called only ghosts remain. And, um, it's just stunning. That's the only, I mean, it is one of the most perfect, collections of pop songs you will ever hear in that vein of pop songs that we love you know that that whole you know big star bad finger um run grinesque with the with the 1980s touch to it small wonder because playing drums and, and contributing on guitar as well, uh, Mitch Easter produced it. Oh, with of him. course. Yeah. So, I mean, it really makes it just that perfect package, but the songs are so powerful and so strong. And now the album is being re-released for the first time on CD with 11 bonus tracks as well. Um, songs taken from some of Bobby's other solo albums. And it comes out officially on... What was the date on Friday, September 22nd, which is this coming Friday. So um, really, if you're listening to this show and you've never heard Bobby's work with or without the Windbreakers, this is one record you absolutely need to hear. This is one of those records that needs to have a second life. I mean, it, it would only do justice to Bobby's work. But the fact is, is that you need to hear this record. It is beyond stunning. And then some. Excellent. You know? 
you can put this up there among any of the great works from the 80s and that's not being said lightly you know you can put this up there with with fables of the reconstruction or uh two by four by guadalcanal diary you know those kind of records that came from that area listen to it and let yourself be absorbed in it because it is really something special Excellent. Uh, I've got one for you as well. And speaking of conversations we've had recently, I got to spend early, uh, early Friday morning, early on my birthday, uh, talking with the one and only Felix Cavallari of the Rascals, the Young Rascals, whatever, <laughs> whatever Rascals there were, he was the guy. And uh, it was a conversation because for the first time in 30 years, how about that? For the first time since 1993, Felix has an album out with his name on it. Now, he's done albums since then, but he's been, you know, a keyboard player or a vocalist or whatever for another group. Um, this is the first quote unquote solo album he's had since 1993, and it's called Then and Now. Um, as has become kind of the tradition lately, it's half covers, half of uh, half of it is him covering songs that helped him build his sound, songs that meant something to him along the way and and kind of made the rascals what they were. And then half of it is brand new material that he wrote. It is also fantastic. And and it's exactly what you would want out of Felix Cavallari. It's breezy. It's fun to listen to. It's um, it has a very analog kind of sound to it. Uh, you know, too often the albums that have been made by older artists, they've gone the the they've gone the shortcut route and they've used pro tools and they've used all of the, the stuff that is easy to make an album sound. Okay. I don't think he did that here because it sounds way too authentic, way too lush. And, and the songwriting is very clever and it's very, uh, contemporary, but it's also, it, it doesn't lose itself in trying to be overly clever like pop songs tend to do now so it, it just it comes off as felix being felix and the conversation was great too he's a wonderful guy um and and clearly i mean yes the hammond b3 is, is featured prominently on this album because it wouldn't be him if it wasn't um but it, it seems like he just had a really good time making it and again then and now is the title of the album um the one song that is a new composition that I would lead you to first is a song called Soul Love. Must be so the last song on the album but i think it's also going to be the first single so check that one out and if you're a fan i've been a fan of the rascals also since i was a little kid so if you're a fan you're going to absolutely love this one and if you're not or you're just not that familiar then this would be a good jumping off point i think you can dig back into the catalog and then this is something that you and i talked about when we had our phone conversation the other day um there is a new ep coming out in november and I, I kid you not, folks, this you're going to love this one because it really it makes all the sense in the world. And it's the perfect melding of two two different eras that that come just they, they came together perfectly. And it is called Dolan's Sings R.E.M. Mickey Dolan's <laughs> of the Monkees covers four R.E.M. songs. This uh, this EP was produced 
played on, uh, arranged and executed, of course, just more than brilliantly by Christian Nesmith, who did the exact same thing with the Dolan's Sings Nesmith album. But this four song EP has been already kicked off with the with the video, actually, of Shiny Happy People. Now, Shiny Happy People is a song that I have always disliked intensely because it's just so irritating. That's the only word <laughs> I can use for it. Uh-huh. I hate when R.E.M. would get cutesy, funny, and goofy. You know, They had their moments with doing some kind of silly stuff, but it wasn't it wasn't going to make you grit your teeth, you know, like nails on a chalkboard really will irritate you. This song really irritated me. But Mickey Dolenz took a goofy, annoying song and made it very sweet and very touching. Happy. It's a very warm version of it that completely changes the feel and context of it. So you can tell right there, the Dolan's magic still very much exists and is alive and thriving at the moment. And the other three songs happen to be Man on the Moon, uh, Radio Free Europe, which I think is a very interestingly inspired choice, and Leaving New York, which makes all the sense in the world because of the way Nikki sings and can deliver such a... A, a powerful and and dramatic song, you know. It's one of my favorite late REM songs, of which there are very few to begin with. Yeah, but this one, all I can say is that he he nailed it, and he nailed it just right with with shiny happy people. So I'm I'm actually looking forward to hearing the rest of these. Good, good deal. Yeah, and you're right. Uh, also, I will put in another plug for Mickey Live. If you haven't and you get the opportunity to go see Mickey Dolan's play a concert as the only monkey left standing, go. Go uh, as as often and as, as much as you can because he still clearly loves performing, absolutely loves it, and you're going to feel that when you go see him. You know what? The only thing I'll say about that is that because he's performed in the New York area several times since Michael's passing, but... I don't think I could bring myself to do it. I, the, the emotion is just I understand. overwhelming for me. I mean, look, I lost it when I was at the last show that I saw the monkeys do. I, I can't. That's the one. I There's such a strong bond in my heart for the monkeys, more so than the Beatles, even. Because, like, you and I have talked about so many times, you know, the monkeys are part of my DNA. From the time that I could, you know, be coherent about what music was and yeah. who they were and what they meant. You know, the monkeys are just that much of a part of me that I, I, I can't, I can't handle the emotional roller coaster that would be a show seeing Mickey. And, and Mickey himself has said in interviews that, you know, there are times when he's performing, he knows not to turn around because if he sees certain clips that are playing behind him, oh yeah, he's going to, he's going to go into that emotional tailspin. I get it, I understand it, I respect it, you know. And kudos to him for having. The ability to bring himself to go out there and do these songs still. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Songs, I can't even listen to them without. <laughs> <one to cry. laughs> yeah. And, and they are in that realm now where, uh, or, you know, I, I say they as, as though they're all still with us because it feels like they are, but 
he's very much a storyteller on stage as well. So you're going to get plenty of background and you're going to get plenty of Mickey talking, but you're also going to get a great performance. So if, if you can handle it, I would, I would seg- s- highly suggest that you go still uh, see Mickey when he's out, especially if he's going to be out touring in support of this. Wouldn't you love to see him live doing this stuff? Apparently he's doing the kickoff at Wuck Street Records in, in, in Athens. When it comes out. <laughs> of course. Yeah, brilliant thing. And the actual EP cover is, an old car in the front parked in front of Wuxtry records. I think this makes all the sense in the world. I, I don't know. Maybe it belonged to one of the guys in REM. I have no idea, but, uh, by the way, I think if I'm not mistaken, I believe Peter Buck and Mike Mills also both are on the CP as Excellent. well. Well, that would only make sense. Yeah, more sense. And from what I gather, there was a very nice, uh, comment made by Michael Stipe about it saying that, you know, the monkeys are one of my favorite groups and, you know, my life is now complete with this. And I think that's a really sweet thing for him to have said. Very cool. Um, before we get into the next thing, a quick football note, because yet again, we have seen another blown lead, another really big blown lead. The Denver Broncos just laid an egg against the Washington Commanders. Washington came back from 18 points down and beat the Broncos 35-33 this afternoon. So there will be more cheering in Kansas City. You know, that this comeback by the Giants was the first time in over in over half a century of them coming back from a 20 point or more uh deficit wow yeah they never were that kind of team the last time it happened was in 1950 against the baltimore colts <laughs> that's fantastic all right um that I, I hate the giants that's why <laughs> yeah but still i mean it's nice to see a little history happen uh now that said th- there is one other thing before we leave music entirely I got to get to the movies because I mentioned this to you. I don't know if you had a chance to watch the trailer I sent you, but there was a, a movie that Jen and I stumbled upon just a little while ago that I, I have been a Led Zeppelin fan since my freshman year of high school. I mean, just always kind of liked them even before that, you know, a song would come on and I go, oh, that's really good. But then freshman year of high school, for whatever reason, um, I, I went out and bought Houses of the Holy and wore the grooves off of the record and then went out and bought all the other ones and wore the grooves off of them too. Couldn't get enough of listening to Jimmy Page play the guitar. And um, there, there, I heard about this movie, didn't really know what to make of it, but then we, we sat down and watched it. It's called Mr. Jimmy, and it's about a guy who grew up in a small town north of Tokyo in Japan barely speaks a word of English at the beginning of the movie. He doesn't speak any, any English at all, but he had a very similar experience to mine in that early on he heard Led Zeppelin and was immediately just obsessed. Couldn't get enough of the music. Couldn't get enough of Jimmy Page's guitar playing and then started doing what we all did. Started collecting the fan club records and the bootlegs and everything else so that he could learn the guitar and that he could learn exactly everything about Jimmy Page and everything that he played during those years from 1968 to 1980 and became so into it that he uh, formed a band, the you know, a Led Zeppelin tribute band in Japan, then got too big for them. At one point, not to ruin anything in the movie, but Jimmy Page came to this little club in Tokyo and watched him and his band play. It's an incredible moment. So then... Things get crazy. He joins a bigger tribute band, a band that's I've seen, by the way, but not with him. 
uh, called Led Zepp again. They were a big deal out of California in the tribute band circle. So he was with them for a while, and then that fell apart because he's such a perfectionist. He actually is a seamstress on staff recreating all of Jimmy's outfits, like the dragon outfit and the bolero coat and everything else, sequin for sequin, rhinestone for rhinestone, stitch for stitch, absolute, you know, perfect remakes of all this stuff. And it's such a crazy story about this guy who says during the documentary, I know I'm never going to be Jimmy Page, but I can't stop trying to be him. Um, it's a story about obsession, but it's also a story about having a dream and refusing to let go of it. And what can happen when you don't, when, when you refuse to let go and I'm not going to give away the end of the movie and, and what he's doing now, but if you have ever found yourself in that, uh, in that space of just never being able to let go of what it is you really, really want to do at the expense of everything else, this is the movie for you. Whether you like Led Zeppelin, hate him, it doesn't make any difference. It's not about that. It's about him and a piece of all of us that I think he represents. And the documentary is brilliantly. It's also called Mr. Jimmy, by the way. Um, so, yeah, it, it it's brilliantly done. And I think as much as possible, even though it, it only focuses on his love of, of Zeppelin and not necessarily Jimmy's stuff before or after. So we don't get a real clear view of what his opinion is of the Yardbirds or of Outrider or the firm or any of that. It's solely focused on the Led Zeppelin portion of Jimmy's career, but it's such a great movie. It's so much fun to watch and it's very redeeming. I got to look it up. It sounds interesting just by virtue of the fact that, you know, the fact that there's this cultural divide there. Yes. And and they talk a lot about that, too, about the fact that, um, I mean, for the longest time, you think about when you and I were growing up, what was Japan famous for? Copying everything that came out of America and not doing it as well as we did, that, that it was all what China's doing now. It's ripping off stuff that was developed here and making cheaper versions of it in Japan. Well, there's some of that in what he's doing, but he's so focused on getting it right and not being a quote unquote cheaper version that it, it really does take that Japanese sensibility and try to make it make sense to an audience over here. Um, it, it's crazy and weird and frustrating at times, but it really is worth a watch. Well, speaking of movies, did you ever, going back to something we talked about previously, I know what you're going to ask and no, <laughs> still haven't seen, I still haven't watched Clerks three. That's 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 appalling. I know. Actually. I've got to do it. I've got to You're do it. You're going to have a lot of time on your hands. We're going to talk about that soon. But yeah. You've got a lot of time on your hands coming up. You you have to. Here's your homework assignment. You have to watch <laughs> Clerks Three. I will. I will definitely watch Clerks Three because we need to talk about it on this show because it is important that we discuss it because it's very it's poignant. You know. Okay. And to actually call a Kevin Smith movie poignant that says a lot. So you know. Uh, regardless, uh, a couple of things. I did go to the movies for the first time in two years, uh, in the last couple of months since you and I did our, our last show. You I saw, saw Barbie, uh, didn't you? <laughs> oh God, please don't let me kill again. <laughs> Where do you want it, John? In the belly or in the head? <laughs> yeah, right. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you said Oppenheimer. Tell me. Uh, yeah, I saw Oppenheimer the weekend that it opened. I really, I was so impressed by it. Yeah, me too. Seriously impressed. Just absolutely. You know, it, it was such a great history lesson as it was, but it was so well done and so well executed and so well acted. Just really top mark, 
top mark. The movie that I've been dying to see since it first came out, I think a year or two ago, this one, and again, this, this you and I had the conversation about, I'm going to watch it on, on Amazon because it's available through them. It's a British film and it's called to be someone. And it, and the, the trailer itself looks hilarious, absolutely hilarious. And it is touted as, and I, and I will explain why it is touted as the quote unquote, sort of sequel to quadrophenia. Oh, wow. Okay. The reason why it's called the sort of sequel is because the storyline has nothing to do with quadrophenia, but it's the fact that everyone who was in quadrophenia is in this movie with the exception of Phil Daniels, who played Jimmy and Sting, who played Ace Face, but everybody else is in it. And there were some snippets of it that I've seen that just made me laugh to no end. And I thought, okay, I'm in. I'm totally in, you know, and I think that the, the tongue in cheek self, you know, the sort of in jokes that are in there, like at one point, one of the characters who was in Quadrophenia, the great Gary Shale, who played Spider in Quadrophenia, he's sitting there. He's kind of like a, you know, they're all a bunch of basic, you know, scumbags um, and criminals or criminal wannabes. And he goes, well, we're supposed to dress like mods. We don't even look like mods. Like, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, a masterstroke right there. So it's it's a sequel, kind of in the same way that Fierce Creatures was not a sequel to a fish called Wanda, but it was the same cast. Right, right. But I love the way they tell the sort of sequel. Yeah, it's like yeah. Offhandedly, and it's got the whole mod graphic look about it. The irony being, of course, to be someone is a song by the Jam, which came out in '78, just before Quadrophenia was released. Yep. But hey, you know, I'll buy that. It's it, I'm sure it's going to be, if nothing else interesting i hope it's fun i hope it's funny i hope it entertains me i hope i'm not going to sit there and curse at them for having done such a movie so i'll let you know when i've sat down and watched it excellent all right very good let's uh, let's talk about the things that that are important and then i guess you know for both of us because we've been down this road before but you're going into a terrain that you know i, I give you all the credit in the world for um, it, this is sort of yet again, folks, another medical update. So, you know where we're at. I'm happy to say that from the last time that we did the show, I've been to the doctor yet again. Um, and my blood pressure is good. He did an EKG. My heart apparently is good. Uh, my cholesterol is still down. My glucose is still down. Yeah. He wants me to take a lung scan because last year I did a, a lung x-ray and it doesn't really show anything. But I'll do that, you know, right before I go to see him again. I don't have to have another blood test for the doctor for six Great. months. Good. I don't have to see the urologist until January. So the next blood test I'll take is for the PSA, which will be the week before I see him in January. So that'll be the end of December. So so far, so good on that front. That that's all I can say there. So um, you know, I'm still on the the very light dosage of Crestor and taking the um the Flomax and and I'm still very much focused on my diet. I am officially down 10 pounds, which came off and have stayed off since that first trip to him right after the whole ordeal I went through with that job. So from four pounds to about eight pounds to 10 pounds that have stayed off. And I'm still on this quest to lose. I want to lose at least 25 total. If I can do that, great. And continuing to go to the gym and certainly no carbs. Avoid as much dairy as possible. Um, you know, I really haven't had a sweet tooth, so that's a huge plus. Good. It really is, you know, a big thing for me. 
Uh, I haven't been eating red meats. So, you know, again, uh, I've been, I didn't even realize this, but, and it was just because I was having this very casual conversation with Frank, the drummer from the bongos, um, who's very much into health and works in the health field. When I was telling him about, you know, the, the dieting that I've been doing and I say, well, you know, I've been having these salads and I tell him what's in the salad. Oh, oh you're on the, uh, the anti-inflammatory diet. I was like, Really? Because I didn't even know I was on that. And I've heard of it, you know, for a couple of years now. He's yeah. like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Because it's kind of a variation of a, um, a, what do you call it, a Mediterranean diet, which yeah. makes sense. Well, it's funny. If, if you need any help along those lines, let me know. Because it just so happens that one of the first books about anti-inflammatory diets was written by a girl that was a camp counselor of mine when I was a little kid. And uh, we, it's not like we've kept in contact the entire time. That book is why I you know, I came back into contact with her. So uh, her name is Monica Reinagle, and she's been writing about, and I'm not making that up either, but she's been writing about that sort of diet now for almost 10 years. So uh, yeah, if, if you need any of that or need some advice along those routes, she's definitely the one to look up. Well, the thing is, I'm going to turn this over to you now, but I'm going to say for the next couple of days in solidarity with you, I'm sticking to nothing but smoothies and liquid diet. <laughs> and a boy. And here, folks, what is why? Let John tell you himself why I'm doing that. Yeah, so what, what I'm doing is, well, a couple of things. First of all, I had an ordeal with my shoulder over the past month, but that's another story for another day. What a nightmare that turned into. But uh, it's okay now, or at least it's getting okay but what I've been dealing with for really the entirety of my adult life, plus a little bit, and I'll explain that in a second, is carrying too much weight around. Always have. And after the pandemic, when everybody put on, you know, 15 pounds at the early part of the pandemic, I put on 25. And it was getting to the point where it was completely unmanageable. I mean, I, and I remember when it happened. I was When I was seven years old, I used to go to JCPenney's with my mom to buy clothes, and she would buy Slim's. When I was nine, it was Huskies. It was that two-year period of time when I just went from one extreme to the other. And then, like I said, throughout high school, throughout my entire adult life, I've been well overweight. So... Uh, it finally got to the point where uh, where we could do something about it. And there's there's two different kinds of bariatric surgery. I'm sure there's probably more than that, but there's two main kinds. One of them is very involved, and that's the gastric bypass, where they essentially cut your stomach out of you and take your trachea and jam it right to the small intestine. So you have no stomach anymore. That's not what I'm doing. The other one is called the gastric sleeve. It's much less involved. And it's, it's what back in the 70s and 80s they used to call stomach stapling, where they would staple off and, and section off a part of your stomach, but leave all, you know, all of the valves that are there now are still going to be in place. And by doing that, it does two things. It, by nature, makes you eat less because you just can't eat as much. Um, but it, it also changes the way that your body deals with the food in your stomach. And I was told, and we'll see how this goes, by the doctor that's going to be doing my surgery, that I could expect over the course of the next year to lose 100 pounds, which is what I need to do. Now, you mentioned the, the liquid diet that I'm on for this week. That's part of the deal, is for a week before and two weeks after the surgery, you are on a liquid diet. And I'm three days into it now, and it's fine. It, I mean, would I like a cheeseburger? Hell yeah, I would like a cheeseburger, but I can't have one. And it's not killing me to say no to that. So um, 
that and then afterwards, after that two weeks after the surgery, then you slowly start adding in pureed foods and mashed potatoes and things like that. And then two weeks later, you go back essentially to eating whatever you want, but just trying to be more careful about it. And for a month before this, I w- was advised by the nutritionist, okay, here are some changes that you should make now so that you kind of get used to this. And it wasn't eating less food. It was eating differently and looking at food differently and, and, you know, making different choices that aren't bad choices to make. That was always the bitch about it. It was like, okay, you got to give up carbs. Well, shit, I can't have dessert. I can't have bread. That sucks. This was more about be smart about the choices that you make and, and make more food yourself, which yes, is a pain in the ass, but it does, it accomplishes two things. It makes you eat better. And it also saves you a ton of money. You were talking about going out to restaurants and how expensive it is there. It's that expensive everywhere. So it really does accomplish both goals. And so now in this week of being on the liquid diet, after a month of just eating better, uh, I'm down 22 pounds so far, even before the surgery. So we'll see what the rest of this week brings and what happens afterward. But I'm looking forward to leading a very different life a year from now than I have ever as an adult and, and really ever as long as I can remember. Well, that's the most important thing. The ongoing, the, the aftermath slash ongoing result of this. Yeah. All the positives it can bring, you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing for me because, you know, I come from a family that's not overweight, but we don't carry weight well because yeah. we're not tall people to begin with. Right. And exactly like you from seven to nine, all of a sudden I went from wearing slims to wearing Husky. <laughs> so the word Husky, I never want to hear again. Right. Tough skins. I, you know, that, that was just the, the scourge of my teenage years all the way through, you know, and, and losing a hundred pounds when I turned 20 was a huge revelation. It really did make all the difference in the world. But now we're in our 50s, and try as we might, it is harder to lose the weight. And I I even said this to my doctor. I said, you know, the frustration is I should have lost more by now. He goes, here's the thing. You're going to the gym. You are starting to, to gain some muscle mass, and that's going to shift your body weight around. So you may not lose the numeric weight, but you are losing weight. More importantly, you're exercising. And right. exercise is the most important thing because it helps bring your, your glucose levels down. It brings your cholesterol down. Subsequently, that is part of what brings the PSA down too. All of that, the change of diet, the physical exercise, and that's so key to me. You know? and, oh, yeah. And, you know, I – at 58, you know, I'm a little world weary at the moment, so I don't know how long I have left, but I want to make the most of it. I don't want to be ill. That's the bottom line. I'm, right. I'm sick to death, no pun intended, of seeing doctors so much, you know. It's that un, it's the proverbial necessary evil of having to go to doctors as you're older, you know, and having to take medication. But the thing is, I'm not a smart aleck about it. I mean, I will be very blunt. You know, part of the reason why I think my mother died so prematurely because she was 56 when she died. She was not well and she needed, keyword is needed to take medications to keep her alive. She had violently high blood pressure. She suffered from chronic hypertension. I thankfully don't. But she, if and I've said it before and I'll say it again, if God Almighty himself came down and said to her, you need to take this medication to stay alive, she would have told him where to go. She wouldn't listen. She wouldn't listen to the doctor. She wouldn't listen to anybody. And that's why she died early. That's the fact. I'm not like that. Doctor says, look, it's a, it's a small dosage of 
of Crestor, but you needed to bring your cholesterol down, I'm taking it. That's all there is to it, you know? Whatever I need to do, I'm going to do, and I'm not going to be stupid about it. And, you know, we we are of that age where we do have to be much more conscious about it and 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 disciplined and that and it's not an easy thing to do and god knows you know just going for groceries even though you're going to save a ton of money not going out to dinner groceries have become the most unaffordable thing across this country <laughs> yeah. it is the, yeah. the probably one of the biggest I hate to say it, it's one of the biggest unifiers of this country right now that no one can afford groceries bottom line and, and I think the most obvious and perfect example is you go to the store the box of cereal, which used to come in two sizes, and of course, the bigger one was the more expensive. Now you're paying the price for the what used to be the bigger box, which is now no longer existing. You're paying that price for the smaller box, which has less than what it did when it was still the smaller box at the lower price. Right. I mean, it's really disgraceful. you know. And, and the thing is, though, I, I've been buying cereal again just by virtue of the fact that, okay – I have that small bowl of, of cereal and I'm very selective about what cereals I eat. I don't eat as much as I used to love them. I don't eat things like, you know, Kellogg's corn flakes or, or frosted flakes or, or any of that stuff. I now just eat uh, Kashi Go. Well, it was called Kashi Go Lean Crunch or um, Nature's. Uh, was it Nature's Path? Is that, I think the brand. Nature's or, Way. I, it's it's one of those. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, anyway, it's just it's called Heritage Flakes, and it, they're really good. Actually, they're really tasty. Either one of those cereals, I use the measuring cups for one cup of cereal, half cup of skim milk, and a, what do you call it? A quarter cup of blueberries, which, by the way, is really good for your heart, especially if you're this age. That's it. You know, coffee, juice, banana. End of story. That's breakfast. Work out, and it's fine. And that cuts out the the you know slices of bread that one would have, like toast in the morning or a muffin. Yeah. You know, I have my one day where I'm allowed to quote cheat, which, you know, I flipped. It's usually Saturdays, but I flipped it for this weekend. So today I had I had a muffin for breakfast. (gasps) I know, I know. Right. Um, But like on Tuesdays and Thursdays when I'm in the office, since I am working part time, uh, you know, I have my I do have toast on those mornings because I do need something of sustenance to get me through the day. But then the only thing I have during the span of the day is a little bottle of cranberry juice, a big bottle of water. Water intake is so important in helping your weight go down and maintaining that because it takes away the hunger. Yeah. So really the answer is, I mean, we're, we're both in that position where we're, we're doing the things now where we knew we were supposed to do them all along. Now it's an imperative. Now we have to. And the thing is, though, it, it, it's, I hate to say it, but I, I, it's the proverbial, I wish I knew then better than I know now. Not, yeah. I, I kind of knew it, but now it's a case of, okay, it wasn't that difficult to to eliminate this and embrace this, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and, and all we really needed was somebody to tell us about it, you know, in a way that made sense and didn't, and wasn't judgy. And I will, I will say this to every doctor in the world who happens to be listening to this show, which is, you know, if you've got somebody who's in that situation, leave the judgment aside. I have, I have been thankful that, um, I've only had a couple of doctors over time who did that and they weren't my doctors for very long because of that. Um, because I don't need somebody to tell me I'm fat, no shit, (laughs) you know, um, and, and coming down on me for it is going to do nothing more than, you know, than the bullies in high school did. So, I mean, if I had had somebody sit me down and do what the nutritionists at the surgeon's office did 25 years ago, I might not, I, I might not look like I do now. 
And so, I, I, I mean, it just it means so much. They talk about bedside manner, but you you have a job to do, and the job is informational. It doesn't have to come with, uh, you know, a threat or a hammer or a judgment or anything else. At the end I'm of it, having arrogance. Let's start yes. With basically, being a human being about it. You know, part of what a doctor is supposed to do is heal, not exacerbate the problem by being an asshole. Thank about you. It. Yes. Yeah. So good. I, I mean, I'm glad things are looking up for you. I'm I'm hoping things go in that same direction for me and whatever it is. I mean, we've, we've always maintained the same mantra on this show. If it goes well, I will tell you about it. If it doesn't go well, I will tell you about it. I don't know what I'm in for here. I mean, they, they've laid it all out for me, what I can expect, but you know, I mean, anytime you have a surgery, it's always going to be uh, you know, there, there things will come up that you didn't expect. So all of that will go through chapter and verse here coming up. I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, last year, I think we, we had the first the, the first warning shot when we did a show right before my getting the biopsy. And yes. then the uh, aftermath of what happened after I had the biopsy. Well, I had the biopsy and, you know, thankfully, a week later, the results were that I didn't have cancer. But the biopsy itself put me in the hospital. You know, it's it, it was just like one unexpected I don't even know what you want to call it. One unexpected circumstance that led to the other, you know, Oh, I'm out of the hospital all of three days and I got to go back out to the urologist. But thankfully I don't have cancer. Well, I'll take that, you know, right. Still, you know, I'm still a mess, but you know. <laughs> well, Hey, if we weren't messes, we wouldn't be us. Um, yeah. So next time we will definitely talk about the, the fiasco with trying to get my shoulder worked on because by that time, hopefully I'll be actually close to a doctor's appointment to get that done. Shoulder. Uh, and I said this to him on the phone last night, folks, it's like very simply don't pitch both sides of a double header. Do not throw <laughs> the knuckleball curve because you don't have the arm for it and you blew it out and you're coming up on free agency and we're we're not going to get enough money. Yeah, well, you are Shoei Otani. <laughs> okay, now he's in the he's really in the deep shit because he can't pitch, he can't hit, and he's going to have to have shoulder surgery all in his walk year. This has got to be the biggest catastrophe that the California, Los Angeles, Anaheim, whatever, Cucamonga Angels are ever going to experience because they have been snake bitten by incompetence over the last several, well, over the last decade, starting with signing Albert Pujols. And that didn't work out. Nothing has worked out for this team. And now their super superstar is in a world of trouble. So, but that's beside the point. I don't want to get off on a baseball thing, but the thing is about your shoulder, your shoulder's bad. And when you told me that you were having this problem, it was right on the heels of me having a shoulder issue. And, my shoulder issue flared up from being on the cell phone for three hours because I was holding it because it was a private conversation. I didn't want to put it on speakerphone, which I could have easily done, but I didn't. So all of a sudden, the day after that, my shoulder started acting up and it's been taking forever for it to heal. But as John quite rightly pointed out, when you are of this age, it takes that area longer to heal and to heal naturally and properly. Yeah. All I've been doing is just taking two, two doses of Tylenol a day and using Icy Hot, and that's been it. And now my wife has been developing the exact same problems in her shoulder. So it's like, wow, we're all going through the whole thing, you know, so we are of no use to any baseball team. Well, I will tell you what my my physical therapist and my doctor both told me: no heat, only ice. Use ice. Icy hot is fine. The 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 stuff that they I don't know. There's more cold feeling stuff. That's fine too. But really, an ice pack is the easiest way to go, and it's gonna be it's gonna do the best for your shoulder. 
I'm sure it will. I, I got. I just got to go to the down the street to the pharmacy and buy a new ice bag. There you go. And so on that note, uh, a couple of things. You know, just in case it wasn't obvious to you folks, because we did we did keep it kind of low key on the last show when we ended it. We recorded that show just before the official 10th anniversary of John and I working together. It was right before the 10th anniversary of Maxwell's closing which was July 31st. And the first time I ever appeared on Overnight America was, I believe, August 8th, if that was the Monday. I think that's right, yeah. Um, Because my piece about Maxwell's closing was on August 6th. So having said all that, John and I have now been working together for 10 years, and I couldn't be happier about that. And this show still keeps going on, and you people keep listening, and that's what we we love to do. So I am beyond thrilled about that. And uh, I want to thank you all for uh, for giving us this this opportunity over the decade. Same here, brother. Thanks a lot for making it happen, and uh, look forward to talking to you next time around. All right. Just uh, I will say this much. Just uh, good luck. I will talk to you before you go into the hospital for the surgery and folks, please send your prayers to and best thoughts to John because uh, we all want him to get in and out as quickly as possible. Okay, so uh, in any event, thank you all very much for listening and we will talk to you all again very, very soon. Bye.